This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Beth Jones, and this is Just About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with Kate White, who was editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine for 14 years. As well as being a busy journalist, Kate has written 12 mystery novels. But what we're talking with her about today is how she has emerged as a career guru for women. She made headlines in the 90s with her groundbreaking bestseller, Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead, But Gutsy Girls Do. And her latest book is The Gutsy Girl Handbook, your manifesto for success. Kate will share some tips from those books as well as stories from her own career. And she'll encourage women to go big or go home. Kate, for years, as as a writer and editor and speaker, you've been giving women great career advice. And today we want to focus particularly on the big, bold advice in your latest book, The Gutsy Girl Handbook. But before we get into the book, can you tell us something about how you built your amazing career? How'd you get started and how'd you keep going? (laughs) Well, I always wanted to be, I guess, a content creator from the time I was a little girl, though they didn't call it that then. I wanted to be a writer and I wrote plays in high school and I put out my own magazine and even before that I was putting out a newspaper in my neighborhood a fabulous paper called the Orville Street News and uh, when I got into college I began to understand that in terms of writing you really had to pick a lane you couldn't write for magazines books newspapers write plays and do all of that at the same time And I won a contest when I was in college called the Glamour Magazine Top 10 College Woman Contest. And part of the reason I jumped at the chance to enter it when my school asked me to be their representative was because I thought this could be an entree into the world of New York magazines. And sure enough, that helped me get a job at Glamour when I first got out of college. So in some ways, my lane kind of presented itself as opposed to me going, all right, which one am I going to pick here? And yet I always secretly wanted to write books one day and explore other things. And I was lucky as time went on, I got the chance to do that too. It was um, a while ago when you started, just like it was a while ago when I started. And the gender gap uh, was pretty big. I mean, it's still in big time journalism at the top. There's still a considerable gender gap. As you were working your way up and you started in a pretty fast lane, were there ever times you thought, ah, this is just too hard. I I don't want to be here. It's just not worth the effort. Well, I can so relate to the question you're asking. And I'm sure there were women in other fields that must have faced that. Something presented itself for me an option that was really great and helped me get beyond that. But basically, when I first got to New York, just as what you're saying, Bev, there were very few opportunities for women and they were contained. I, before I got the job at 
at Glamour, I went to Newsweek to apply for a job, and I was told we hire women here, but women only become researchers. They don't move up beyond a certain level. And I couldn't believe it. And it took a brave group of women in the 70s to sue the company and change that. So that was a kind of situation when that happened where I just said, well, I'm not going to waste my time here. And I went into women's magazines where even though there were still men, believe it or not, as the editor-in-chief of McCall's and Family Circle and Red Book, which is just appalling to think of, there were at least plenty of opportunities to move up. And just briefly, when I was probably at, uh, you know, around 27, 28, I was, by this point, I had moved up from assistant to junior writer at Glamour Magazine. I began to see that if you really wanted to keep moving up in magazines, you had to be an editor. And I took a job at a little magazine called Family Weekly, which was a newspaper supplement on Sundays, kind of like Parade is. And it was uh, really a general interest magazine. And a lot of famous editors-in-chief came out of that magazine because it gave you an opportunity to really strengthen your strengths, which is something I always advise people to do when I give career talks. Don't worry so much about your your weaknesses, marginalize those, just keep strengthening your strengths. Well, my wonderful boss announced he was leaving one day to go run GQ magazine. And the the sad news for me was that he was leaving, but the good news was that he was going, I was going to be put in the running for the job, his job, and I was also going to be given the task of running the magazine until they found his replacement. And it was so thrilling for me. I discovered, yeah, I like being the boss. It was good. It was a good feeling. But I was told uh, after three months I didn't get the job. Well, my old boss took me aside a couple months later and said, Kate, I will deny this in the court of law, but I was told you didn't get the job because they decided they didn't really want a woman in that job. Now, that could be just the kind of moment you're talking about. Yeah. I thought, gee, should I just throw in the towel? But the other option I referenced to you was to go back into women's magazines. I made the decision right then. I'm going back into that genre, and then I'm not going to face the same level of hurdles. So shortly thereafter, I got a job as uh, an executive editor at Mademoiselle Magazine in charge of articles because I'd strengthened all those strengths as an editor in the four years of Family Weekly. And so for me, that at least provided an avenue. And, but it was tough then. If you were a lawyer, you saw tons of discrimination probably against you. And what do you do? Go to another law firm? You can't be sure that that wasn't going to happen there. But I at least had a, a recourse. You know, I, I think um, I became so interested in um, the issues of helping women move up and find their path and create their lane because some of my own struggles early on as a lawyer and some of the things I've done. Is that what inspired you to step out back in the 90s? And you you wrote a bestseller, Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead But Gutsy Girls Do. Did that? Were you pulling that up from your own experience? It's actually kind of a funny story because I was working at Mademoiselle and I really liked it, but I had a baby and my boss started giving me a hard time about leaving at a reasonable hour and I thought I've got to uh, become 
I've got to go out on my own. I've got to be the one in charge. And eventually, after becoming editor of a parenting magazine, I became the editor-in-chief of a wonderful business magazine for women called Working Woman. And I was seven months pregnant when I got the job. But part of it was me just wanting to be in control of my destiny because I was a working mom. I wanted uh, more resources at my disposal to make it easier for me to leave and go home every day at 5.30. And I always had to work at night after the kids went to bed, but I wanted the flexibility. And after I got the job, a woman who had been on staff quit and she wrote an article about the fact that she wanted to throw her hat in the ring, but she had not done it because she was too much of a good girl. She thought, well, I have a toddler, I won't be able to do it. And she said, the woman who took the job was seven months pregnant and she clearly wasn't held back by any good girl tendencies. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I am gutsier than I even realized. And I really thought a lot about how, yes, there was a lot of discrimination against women then, and there still is bias, sometimes unconscious, but we hurt ourselves at times because we hesitate, we hold back, we wait for further instructions instead of just not just leaning in but grabbing the wheel and we need to do that. So all of my thinking on that came together for a book called Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead But Gutsy Girls Do and it was a, a really nice bestseller back in the 90s. And it crystallized some thoughts for me, too. And I, I really believe, Bev, that I got the job as editor-in-chief of Cosmo, in part from what I learned writing that book. Well, I think you brought some of the consciousness from the book to Cosmo, didn't you? As you were choosing your stories and choosing yes. how to well, tweak the brand? Yes, yeah, certainly. Cosmo has always been over the top. And it was a real powerhouse under Helen Gurley Brown in the 60s and on. But a lot of magazine superpowers from that time were dying as they came into the 21st century. And the magazine business is in terrible shape now, but it, it, it wasn't then. There were a lot of new magazines. And my mission was to reinvent Cosmo without throwing out the DNA for the 21st century. And I really feel that the way I did it was being fearless enough to be a disruptor, to change the tone in the magazine. Of course, management told me, don't change anything. And I said, oh, I won't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I changed everything, but not the DNA. And so, yes, I think the gutsy thing really helped me. But, it, but being at Cosmo made it a little bit easier because Cosmo was such a fabulously gutsy place and you worked with tons, tons of gutsy people. The people I hired were so amazing. It took a certain kind of person to want to be there. Well, you left Cosmo about six years ago and now it feels like you've still got a very busy, gutsy career. What are you or what are you not doing these days? It seems like you're doing a few things. Yes, uh, I am living the life of a fabulous outdoor cat, I sometimes feel, where I, I'm still busy. I write a murder mystery every year. I'm on, under contract in to at least three or four more years to do one every year. I love doing that. I do a lot of speaking on career success around the country, and yet I control my hours. I control 
my my business, my destiny. And I live in Uruguay with my husband during the wintertime for three months. So that's fabulous. And I really recommend to people, we, you know, that it's it's great to kind of think ahead a little bit. I always had a dream to do this. And if you think about it in advance, it allows it to take shape in an organic way so that when you're ready to do it, or it's forced upon you. Fortunately, I didn't have that happen. I got to leave uh, on my own, but sometimes we, the rug gets pulled out. But if you planted a seed that there's another story for you to write one day about your career, it makes it easier for it to happen. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University is having an impact today while providing innovative education for tomorrow's leaders. The master's program in public administration and environmental studies leads students to greatness in nonprofit, environmental, public sector, and government settings. Learn to lead at the Voinovich School. We're now accepting applications. Information is available at ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. One of the ways I know you've talked about um, planting seeds and, and kind of looking ahead is to have a side hustle. And, and writing novels was your side gig when you were an editor, wasn't it? Yeah, though, though of course back then we called it having a plan B. And uh, for me, I did it for two reasons really. That one was I did not want to end up fired one day with nothing to do. I just felt it would be good to have something in my back pocket. And secondly, it was something I always wanted to do. And when I was in my 40s, I thought, I am running out of time. And if I don't do this, no one's going to give me a book contract when I'm too old, because a lot of it is about being mediagenic and that sort of thing. So I decided to make a go for it. And it was a, definitely burning the candle at both ends at times. But I was really glad I did it. Now, should I have left my job years ago to do it? Because I think a lot of people do side hustles with the idea of I'm going to throw in the towel with this job and do my side hustle. I I advise both men and women to really think about that. Is there an advantage to working for a great company, being vested, building up your nest egg, and doing your side hustle later, which is what I did, and that turned out to be a really great formula. So be careful about throwing in the towel to start a jewelry designing business when you're 34 years old because you may be missing an opportunity unless you're really great at what you do, uh, you might be missing an opportunity to, to build a career someplace else. Of course, I don't want to thwart anyone's creativity. It's really worth exploring, sometimes on a volunteer basis or side basis, does this have legs and could I run with it? Well, I think t managing time is one of the things that kind of um, – gives people pause and that may be one reason they take a leap too early because they don't think they can juggle did right. did you struggle with that 
Oh, yeah, because I was a world-class procrastinator in my 20s. I just would pull on nighters to write little articles for Glamour, like how to get rid of a pimple by Saturday night. I just couldn't <laughs> act together. But one little smart thing I did was I pitched an article idea once on time management. I interviewed, at the time, some of the top time management people, including a guy named Alan Lakin, who Bill Clinton mentioned in his autobiography as being very valuable to him, too. He wrote a book called How to Get Control of Your Time and Your Life. And one of the tips that really helped me, and I love to share this with people, it's very simple, but it works. And I often shared it when I was at Cosmo and would give talks then. The number one question was, how do you do both? How do you write murder mysteries? And how do you do Cosmo? It, It was a tip called Slice the Salami. And the guy who came up with it, Edwin Bliss, said the reason we don't do daunting tasks sometimes is not because... We don't really want to do them, but we make them too big. And he said, you've got to slice that sucker down. You make it into as small slices as possible to make you want to do it. And so I had struggled before to try to write fiction. And I would go, let me put Saturday aside and I'll try it. This is before I had kids. You don't put Saturday aside when you have kids. Well, I started writing just 15 minutes a day in the beginning. Because I figured that's a small enough slice for me. And that was a great time management trick that helped me. And also, I would say just to not be afraid to schedule your downtime if you want to use part of your downtime for a side hustle or exploring a side hustle. Put down on your calendar 11 to 11.30. I'm going to watch three TEDx talks on side hustles or whatever. Don't just let it happen. Schedule it. I think that's that's a great time management tip. I encourage clients to schedule a little bit, even if it's just a tiny step, but have a regular cadence of tiny steps and just keep taking a little step. It doesn't have to be like linear step one, step two, but just do a little thing from time to time, and that'll keep you moving. But speaking of tips... Well, I love how you combine those two things, that it's it's about scheduling and keeping it small, which is really so great, I think, if you can do that route. Yes, yes. And, and speaking of tips, I don't want to uh, run out of time before we dig into the book. Uh, the Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. It's full of tips and suggestions, and, and I think um, it shares your manifesto, at least that's what it sounded like to me, go big or go home. So so what does it mean for a gutsy girl in today's marketplace? What does it mean to go big? You can't do what you've been told to do and do it really well and expect advancement from that. And I see young women, young men, people early in their careers in their 20s and 30s, making this mistake and people make it again in their 50s when they're kind of resting on their laurels you've got to be coming up with bold innovative sometimes disruptive ideas for your company for your department ideas that make your boss really that you're dazzling your boss with you can't just be pleasing your boss you got to dazzle your boss and if it's been a while since your boss said to you hey that's a great idea uh, make it happen or go with, go for it, then you're doing something wrong. 
And, you know, just following up, one of the things that you can do is if you feel like you don't have a great idea, you can look around and notice and find other people's ideas and find um, different kind of ways to support them. It's it's really looking for the opportunity. You wrote somewhere that um, you can make your opportunity or you can see it and leap for it, right? Right. Well, ask yourself what's missing. What uh, What problem could I solve? A young woman wrote to me a while back saying that she had heard me mention this in the speech and she was working as a, an, a young associate in a PR department in a company and she realized they had no crisis manual to deal with one of those things that happens to companies these days when the so-called you-know-what hits the fan. And so she went ahead and created a crisis manual and they love that. And then so she looked for something else that was missing and she said those two moves got her promoted. There's an interesting study that said that I just saw that said that the kind of glamour projects that get you promoted are 20% less likely to go to women and men and women of color. So you, when you see something, you know, happening over here, like maybe they're picking somebody to represent the company at an event, you got to raise your hand for it too. So it's looking for what's missing, but also don't wait to be asked go to your boss and say, I hear you're planning to have someone represent us at the convention. I would love to, to show you what I could do with that. And and part of it, uh, part of getting the opportunities, part of drawing attention to your potential for handling the opportunities, you suggest is, is building a, a personal brand. You had a good uh, description in, uh, in the book about how uh, to have a brand statement. And I um, I wonder if you can explain a little bit what you mean by a brand, because sometimes I find my clients are sort of reluctant. They think it's not authentic to have mm-hmm. a brand, and yet we all have them. What, what do you mean by a brand, and how do you um, suggest that people get started on clarifying what they want their brand to be. Uh, I hear you because I do, I do think it sounds very cliched by this point. So maybe another way to think about it is just defining what you're passionate about, what you're really good at, and what makes you unique. And so if you want to call it something other than a brand statement, that's fine. But it does help if you can think about your core values and your core strengths and then maybe boiling them down to three or four that you feel really tighten that definition and then in your own mind coming up with some sort of statement because it's really great if you can be able to have a statement that you hold against your your decisions and your options so that you are choosing what makes sense for who you are and what you want to do and you're, you're declining stuff that doesn't. Cosmo when I got there, had a great brand statement, Fun Fearless Female, which meant it was a magazine that was really fun. It didn't take itself too seriously. Female, it was sexy. And fearless was that things were over the top in the magazine. And I used that constantly to help me decide about stories. Sometimes people would pitch stuff that I personally would like, that I would just realize off-brand, off-brand, off-brand. So I think if people just reimagine it in their own minds to be slightly different. It's just a definition of your passions and your skills and use it to your advantage because it's also important to hold it against what's happening outside 
if you're in the magazine business right now and your personal brand relates to that, you're in trouble because that is a field that's declining. And you want to be sure when you do have a brand that you're holding it against the marketplace so that what you're doing still makes sense. It, you might need to tweak it a little bit or a lot. You, you talk about the practice of regularly asking essential questions as a, as a way to look at your brand, create your brand, and see if you're on brand. Like, right. what, what would be an example of an essential question that might be a regular practice to ask? What I believe helps is to spend 30 minutes a week where you are contemplating your success in your career. We get so busy doing our jobs well that we often don't stop back and evaluate that. What I like to suggest people ask is, am I happy? Am I so happy it means I'm in a comfort zone and I'm not challenged anymore and I need to leave? Am I doing what really feels authentic for me? You mentioned the word authentic, Bev, and that's such an important word. Does it feel good? Is it a good fit for me? Is there some girlhood or boyhood dream that I'm running out of time to do? Am I being compensated in a way that feels good or is that gnawing at me every single day? Is my boss giving me room to grow? All of those are the kinds of questions you need to be asking yourself so that you're not so much caught up in your job, but you're also being the architect of your career because no one else is going to do that job for you. You know, one of the questions that that I like that um, your book kind of implies with its whole approach is what opportunities are right in front of me that I'm missing? For For example, I have... I hear people complaining, oh, I can't get anything done. I can't do anything. I can't uh, let them see what I can do because I have to go to all these meetings. Mm-hmm. And that suggests to me that meetings may be an opportunity that people are not taking advantage of. And and, and you suggest that, you know, um, it's not enough to just sit there half engaged. Meetings are opportunities. How, how can people make better use of meetings? Well, if you're the leader, I would say cut the number of your meetings you're having in half. I think meetings are a huge time suck and soul suck, too. I never attended a meeting with more than five people that was worth anything. It's important to keep meetings small. I love meetings where you never let anybody stand, sit, sit down. You stand up. And... You just give yourself a a quick agenda. Sometimes you can pass out the agenda. You call people who get off on tangents because they're the ones who usually aren't prepared. Mm -hmm. If you are the person going to the meeting, you want to game the meeting as much as possible first. Who's going to be there? What's their agenda? How can you use that meeting to your advantage by bringing up an idea that's really going to be dazzling. And some of it's about knowing how to present yourself in a meeting. There are studies that show that women tend to be tentative, so it's good to get a good space for yourself at the table. 
a, a, a person who is in nonverbal communication told me, you don't want to sit right next to your boss because then you can't make eye contact. So sit a seat away, but still sit at a good part of the table, bring a drink, bring your, your iPad so you're owning your space. And when you bring up your idea, avoid disclaimers like, uh, this might not work for us, but, or I'm not sure if this idea is right, but, or maybe we could go in strong and don't bury the lead. Don't start with the research. That's another thing studies show women sometimes do where they'll say, there was this study that came out of California and I noticed that such and such, such and such, and there's a peak of this and maybe we should do this. Just come right out and say, I think there's an opportunity for us to grow our sales in California by 9% by doing this. And all those things will help you be more of a winner at meetings. But whatever you can do to decrease the number of them, please do. Yes. Well, Sam said so. Well, I, I like the way you talk about speaking with confidence. That's still something that we women, I think, are often working on. After all these years, I'm still having to remind myself, don't start out with the disclaimer. I know. Even just the other day, I ran into Katie Couric, and she was telling me she was on a board meeting with this really powerful woman who started an idea with all this hesitation, qualifying of, I'm just spitballing here, but just practice with a friend, uh, practice with your partner, learn to just start strong. Absolutely. And I think that it's never too late to start being a gutsier girl. In fact, it gets a little easier with time because, you know, after a certain point, what are we afraid of? So it's right. it's it's not just the people who are starting out who can um, get some great ideas from the Gutsy Girl Handbook. Do you have any um, final tips or thoughts or resources you want to share with us from or about the book? Well, I'd love to just reaffirm what you just said. It does get easier. The more you do it, the more you speak up in a meeting, practice giving presentations, asking for what you want, asking for a, a better starting salary than they're suggesting, you'll discover the next time it's so much easier. And also what you hinted at, don't stop doing it. The big mistake I see women making in their 40s and 50, 50s is taking their foot off the gas because they're really busy, it's crazy, and they kind of think, hey, I've proven myself, but you're vulnerable then. So be a, go big and you'll find that really decreases your vulnerability. Kate, thank you so much. I totally agree with you. I so enjoyed your book. I, I can't believe after all these years, I'm, I'm, I'm still learning from other people's tips. It's never too late. Um, um, thanks again for being here. Great. Thank you. You must be a fabulous coach is all I can say. Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful note to end on. <laughs> Today, we've been talking with author, journalist, and well-known cheerleader for women in the workplace, Kate White. Today's career tip is that you do have a personal brand, and it can have a tremendous impact on your career. It's your job to know how you want people in the workplace to see you. And once you are clear on just how you want to be seen, you'll find lots of opportunities to project your authentic brand.
This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Here at Jazzed About Work, we're always happy to hear your comments and suggestions. And you can email me directly at beverlyejones at me.com. Let me spell that out. B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-E-J-O-N-E-S at me.com. Thank you.